hear the assurance of the gospel. God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. He upholds the fallen, and he raises the humble, and speaks forgiveness to those who repent. Jesus identifies with you, humbling himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross for your sake. In Christ, your sins are forgiven, your suffering will not go wasted, and your every need is supplied so that you may live a life of godliness until the eternal day of glory. Together, let's say, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your rule endures throughout all generations. Thanks be to God.
this morning, we get to enter into a time of intercession. Um, and as the body of Christ, we get to pray on behalf of the needs, not only here locally, but around the world. So this morning, we're gonna pray for something that's especially dear to my heart, for missionaries, for unreached people groups, and for the persecuted church. First, for missionaries. Their task is incredible, and they get to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, but they also experience hardships. So we wanna pray against isolation and feelings of discouragement. We also wanna pray against barriers that they face every day when trying to preach the gospel. So let's pray all together out loud, boldly against those things. people group means that less than 1% of that people group have been evangelized. Many don't have access to the gospel or have even heard the name of Jesus. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says that the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that, uh, to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. So let's pray for laborers for the harvest. Also, because access is difficult, let's pray for people from those people groups to go to global cities where they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and take it back to their homes. So let's pray boldly together. Christians have been persecuted for what they believe. And Ephesians 6, 12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil. So let us pray against the power of Satan. Let's pray for protection for the, for the believers and for encouragement of the gospel of peace. Let's pray boldly together.
Good morning. I'm sorry to disturb good conversation, but uh, you will want to go to lunch, and Ben will preach long, so no, I'm kidding. Uh, welcome to Frontline. We are so glad you're here this morning, uh, and uh, can we can be together and worship uh, the one true living God together. And this morning, if you have maybe been here a few times, or maybe you're a first-time guest, and we haven't had a chance to meet you, we would love for you to fill out a welcome card that's in the chair back in front of you and take it back to our community board, our community group board, and uh, there will be someone there to greet you and have a gift for you. So if you would, please do that. That would be helpful. Uh, this morning, as we uh, continue in our worship, we have been worshiping and, and, and proclaiming that Christ is King and Lord uh, through song and through prayer and through scripture. And, and now we want to continue in doing that in our giving. Uh, it's where we proclaim uh, that he is the true Lord of our life. And we lay down everything at his feet, including our money. And uh, that's always a tri tricky subject, uh, but it's true. Uh, we want no idols before him. We want to proclaim him as the one and true uh, king of our heart and Lord of our life. So this morning, as we prepare to give uh, sacrificially and, and generously, uh, let's pray, and then I'll share how we can do that. Uh, Father, we do uh, just come in awe uh, of how you care for us, how you sent your son for us, and, and that uh, that you choose uh, to uh, uh, bring your kingdom here on uh, through us uh, and allow us to be a part of it. And so just thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, there's a couple of ways you can give. You can give uh, physically with check or cash. And the, there are black boxes on the wall as you exit uh, back by the doors, or you can go online and give at Frontline Church uh, backslash give, and uh, you can uh, click on there and give there. A couple quick announcements. Uh, one of the things, one of the most important things that we've ever done for this church is happening right now, and that's uh, we have uh, 14 people going through a deacon cohort uh, to learn what it means to be a deacon. And uh, we've been, we began walking through that last week and began uh, by just simply uh, the study of what the church is, the church being the manifold wisdom of God. And this week uh, we'll be walking through what it means uh, to be called as a deacon and to lay down your life as a servant and to fight for unity in the church no matter what. So. We'll be walking through that tonight and through the next few weeks. We are doing that, and we would uh, encourage you uh, to be praying uh, for that because it feels like it could be a huge moment in the, the life of this church family and helping us grow and mature. Uh, student ministries this week will be out, out because of fall break. 
but they are parents, they are continuing to go through the book, uh, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer. And it's been a really good book, walking through some hard questions uh, around their lives and the questions that culture is throwing at them and equipping them to answer those questions in a, in, in a good and godly way. So uh, remember them and, and lift them up in their prayers. And, and lastly, if you have not had an opportunity uh, to connect with a community group, uh, there will be somebody back there at our board to do that. We would love for you to do that, to get connected and plugged in. Now, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. In Mark 9, verses 2 through 13, God speaks to us in his word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but, only, or but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Emily. Good morning. Good to see everybody. My name is Ben. If I haven't met you yet, really glad that you're here. Thanks for getting out of bed this morning and coming to church. Um, I get to serve as one of the pastors here, um, so lead pastor here in this congregation, and today is a really special day for a couple reasons. Um, we are a church that loves other churches. We try our best to pray for other churches and to strengthen them with prayer, but also with presence. Um, we have friends, that multiple friends that have planted churches, and um, we are friends with a lot of churches in this town. We root for them. Some of them are different than us but they preach the same gospel, and so we root for them. We want people to be saved and, and, um, and meet Jesus in, in, in their church. Um, we also are part of church planting. So for us uniquely, we are a sending church, which means that we don't get mad when people um, decide it's time to go somewhere else or God's calling them somewhere else. We, we try our best to walk through that with them and then champion them and say, God bless you. Go and bring the presence of God and the power of God wherever you go and plant. Sometimes we get um, the very rare gift of being able to send some of our best leaders. And we always want to send our best, some of our best leaders to go and plant other churches. 
Today's a special day because uh, four-ish months ago, we sent Aiden Sims and Katie Sims out to North Carolina um, to go and plant Frontline Church in North Carolina with one of my best friends, John Murphy, and then also Blake Burrow. Well, Aiden was here this weekend. He left. He was here for a conference, but his wife, Katie, is here today. Katie, would you please stand so that we can say that we love you? I'm so sorry. She will never come back. Thank you for going. Hey, I know that that's probably the straw that broke the camel's back. You'll probably never come back. Um, but listen, we are so proud of you, and we're proud of Aiden. You guys are amazing. Um, two of the best young leaders that this church has ever had. And we, we, are, we are honored and, um, and proud to send you to be a part of starting something new. You are going to be, you have been and will continue to be such a major blessing to a very hard, very small town in North Carolina that needs Jesus. So thank you. Stay in it. Um, man, fight. Keep fighting. Keep pressing in. Keep trusting Jesus. We're proud of you. He is too. Thanks for being here. All right. Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> I didn't even cry. Well, I thought Y'all thought I was going to as well. I didn't. I'm proud of myself. Mark chapter 9. Coming on the hills of this weekend, uh, we hosted a lot of small town pastors in this church. We hosted a conference here called Small Town Jesus. And about 50 pastors that we were able to encourage. And you'd have been really proud of our church for doing that. It struck me several times as we're, I'm meeting, I'm meeting, I'm myself and feeling what they're feeling, and I'm also meeting with several men and women who um, are just ready to quit. It's been hard. 2021's real hard. 2020 was hard. 2021's been really hard. Um, and you might not know it, but you probably feel some of this, the fog, the haze, the blurriness of the world right now. Pastors feel it as well. We can't get it right. They can't make the right decision or make the, what they should do or what they shouldn't do. It's just hard. And so being in a room with so many pastors, um, it struck me several times like I kept asking the question, what are, who are we? <laughs> who am I? Who am, am I a pastor first? Am I a man called to ministry first? Are they? Are the women in the room, are they women called to ministry first and primarily? And it kept, because if that's who we are, if that's who you are, if, you, if who you are is what you do for God, um, then it's, you're never going to be satisfied with yourself or with God. You know why? Because you can never do enough. And people are always going to be mad at you, especially if you lead anything. People are going to be mad at you, upset, you name it. I've got several people in the room that have led, lead, and they are, they're shaking, they know, Yes. They're going to be mad. You can't make the right decision. we got to get to the bottom of what our identity is. It's not what you can perform for God. It's not even about you at all, to be honest. Your identity as a Christian has entirely to do with who Jesus is. And that's a very Christian cliche statement to make until we get to the bottom of it, to just know, like, how am I, I don't know how to say it other than, how then am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to view myself and view the whole world around me? And if you're a Christian today, if you said yes to Jesus, then literally all of your identity is wrapped up in his identity. And so 
in Mark, which is where we've been studying, is we're at this point in this book that really drives that home. Mark is one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest gospel, but my goodness, it's fast-paced. It's like one continual, it's like an action movie that just has one camera. They don't bother, they don't even have a good budget. I don't know why, but it's just one shot. They can't even afford to like change out the battery on the camera. Imagine two and a half hours of one continual action movie. That's what Mark is like. It's one thing after another after another. And there's this question that's constantly being asked. It's, who is Jesus? And the inevitable question that comes after that is, who am I? Who am I? 16 chapters in Mark. Chapter 8, obviously right in the middle. If you're not a math whiz, that is the middle of 16 chapters. I'm not a math whiz. And right in chapter 8, man, is this turning point. The first seven chapters of this book of Mark, we've been answering, God's been answering the question for us of um, not just who we are, but who is Jesus? And the answer is this. We've come to the conclusion now in, in chapter 8. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is, in fact, the King. Peter confesses it a couple of sermons ago. Jesus, you are the Christ. And then the next eight chapters of Mark is this question. What has he come to do? Why is he here? We answer, Jesus is king. And then the next thing is, yeah, but he's, he's not like you think. And because he's not like you think, you're not like you think either. You are different because of him, because of what he's come to accomplish. He takes a blind man in chapter 8. He heals his vision, sort of. He actually partially heals his vision. The blind man, Jesus asked him, can, can you see? He says, well, kind of. People look like trees now. <laughs> he was blind, and now he can kind of see you look like a tree. And then Jesus heals him fully, and his sight is fully restored. The very next thing that happens is Jesus asks Peter, asks his disciples, who do people say I am? Peter responds this way. He says, some people say you're John the Baptist, who had died earlier. Some people say you're Elijah. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Elijah was like about 1,000 years before Jesus was an Old Testament prophet, one of the major prophets of the people of God. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this, he says, you are the Christ. And you think, okay, good, Peter, you got it. And then Jesus starts to teach about all the things that he must do, which are things like suffer, be killed, be shamed, be embarrassed, Make them embarrassed because they followed him. And in Peter's mind, here's the problem. He, like all of Israel, thought when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come to restore power and authority to Israel, and we're going to be the boss nation now. When Messiah comes, because he'd been prophesied about for 
years and years and years. When he comes, he will overthrow the Roman government. He'll be this military strong arm. So Peter confesses Jesus, you are the Messiah. And in his mind, that means military power. And then Jesus talks about suffering and dying and being put to open shame. Now, if Messiah is supposed to come and be military power, respect, authority, when he confesses that he needs to be put to shame and abuse and suffering, your mind starts to trip. And Peter does. He rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's a pretty strong rebuke. I don't recommend using that, by the way. Peter's sight is blurry. His identity is blurry. The blind man's sight was blurry. His identity became whole when Jesus made it whole. And now Jesus is fully revealing to us what exactly he's come to do, what kind of king he actually is, not the one that you make in your image, not the one that you think that you need, but the one that you actually need. And today, we need to hear it. We need this story because he's about to go up on a mountain. He's about to do some crazy stuff, too much for me to even preach about. And we need to see who Jesus truly is in his essence. So verse 2 says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Everything Mark says is pointed. He has a reason for telling you about six days and a mountain. He wants you to know that he's telling the truth. He wants it to historically be accurate. And also, there's all kinds of just like um, analogies. There's all kinds of metaphors. There's all kinds of things that why, why Jesus would take six days to go up in the mountain, it makes sense when you look at the whole Old Testament. Six days before this, as a matter of fact, Jesus had healed a blind man. Also six days before is when Peter confesses. They go up on a mountain. Why a mountain? What does that have to do with anything? Mountains played a very significant role in the Bible as a whole. Remember where Noah landed after the flood? He landed on a mountain. Remember what Moses did? He went up on the mountain to get the law, came back down the mountain. And in Jesus' specific ministry life, lots of mountain. Jesus slips away to pray on a mountain. He preaches the sermon on the mountain, on a mountain. He is tempted by Satan on a mountain. He calls his 12 disciples from a mountain. He commissions his disciples for the work of ministry from a mountain. And ultimately, he's crucified on a mountain. So they go up on the mountain, and here's what happens. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I love this. Just in case you were wondering, just in case you were like, Mark is going, okay, I gave you the historical context six days. I told you that they went up on a mountain. That should matter. He was transfigured. His clothes become white. And just in case you're going like, well, I mean, they could have carried like a whole bottle of bleach with them or something. They just say nobody could have done to his clothes what happened on that mountain. So he's transfigured. What does that mean? Transfigured literally means in Greek metamorphosis. But not like you think. As soon as I hear that word, I think of, 
a caterpillar and a butterfly. It's not like that. It's not becoming something altogether different. Jesus, it's his eternal glory, his eternal holiness being uncovered and shown for who he truly is. See, Jesus had always been the holiness and the glory of God. That's what's happening with his clothes. It's brightness shining brighter than the sun. He isn't coming something other. He's eternally been this. Jesus, again, is making our blurry vision clear. He's revealing who he truly is, which is this. Jesus is the glory of God. He doesn't just shine the glory of God. He himself is the glory of God. Matthew and Luke describe more than just his clothes shining bright. They describe his face as well. So what does all that mean? What are you talking about, glory and brightness? And Throughout the Old Testament, what we'd have seen is the glory of God being described as shining brighter than the sun, not able to look upon it. It passes by Moses, the presence of God. You see it multiple times in the Old Testament. Um, his glory shining in a, a pillar of, of fire, a cloud that leads the people of Israel. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. Unable to look upon it. This is God's holiness I'm talking about. So I, I know it's hard to fathom. But just think about how holy God is that his holiness is brightness. Which makes sense. Because of how dark sin is. And how dark we are and how dark the world is and how Jesus became light into a dark world. The Bible describes God's holiness as brightness, unable to look upon it. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. Daniel 7 talks about it, describes God as the ancient of days. His holiness is eternal. Jesus reveals his eternal holiness, the brightness of God, the Shekinah glory himself. Here's what happens. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So if that seems a little bit off, a little bit odd, what Peter's saying there, it's because it actually is. And just in case you're wondering whether or not it is, the next line says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter is like, does what you do and I do a lot. It's like when I get scared or I'm just like, you become a nervous talker. Imagine Elijah one of the great prophets of old, and Moses, both of whom had gone. Moses had died, Elijah was taken up. Imagine, with Jesus now burning brighter than the sun, the Shekinah glory of God himself, one that no one could look upon, and Peter's just standing there. I mean, he's probably in utter shock, to be honest. Would you like for us to make tents for you? I just imagine, you know, going, are you guys, is everybody... 
Does anybody else see what I'm seeing? That's Elijah. I guess we can offer him a place to sleep. I mean, I almost want to stop there, but it's so silly. I know there's probably some historical, like, realities here that I don't even know about, but it, had it not just said, he did not know what to say, which is very kind of Mark. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You would have been too. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and here's what the voice said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So don't just act like this is just another story. Put yourself there on the mountain as Peter, as James, as John. All three of them were knuckleheads, and so are you, and so am I. I Peter said something probably way better than I would have said in that moment. I probably would have passed out, to be honest. Elijah, Moses, Jesus, clothes are now brighter than the sun. And then God the Father comes out of the cloud. He's spoken out of a cloud before. The Old Testament he does it again. God, the Father, Yahweh, comes out of the whirlwind to Job. Now he comes out of this cloud, and he says something so simple. He just affirms, this is my son. Listen to him. So the first thing we got to see this is the confession of the Father for Jesus being his son. Father confesses Jesus as his son. All right, let's catch up to it. We need to catch up to where we're at. Six days earlier, Jesus had asked his disciples a couple questions. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? This is six days earlier than this moment on the mountain. There were lots of answers to that question. Again, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, you are the Christ. But now, it is God the Father's turn to answer the question about his son. It's who do people say that I am, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And the Father comes up and says, I'm telling you who he is. It's important to note that God the Father speaks audibly only two times in Mark. The first time was Mark 1, 1-11, at Jesus' baptism. Here's what he says. And a voice came from heaven, and the Father says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is a personal message to Jesus. He is announcing to the world who Jesus is, but it's also a personal message to him, which is what you need today. And I need it as well. Now just think about Jesus' life. His first act of ministry on earth was to be baptized. This is before Jesus healed anybody. This was before Jesus preached. This is before he started his march towards the cross. The Father looks at him like he does to you today before Jesus is ever able to accomplish anything for him. And he says, I'm pleased with you. God the Father is not boss. 
He's not our dictator. He is our father. And we have to get it out of our head that we've got to work for his approval. You can't. You never could. He is pleased because of who he is, not because of who you are. That's good news. You don't have to work for his approval. This personal message to Jesus, he's letting us know who he is. He's letting Jesus know who he is. Now we've got this scene on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. The father has confessed who his son is. But why Moses and why Elijah? Why not other people? What is happening here? Transfiguration? Now the glory of God in his clothes? Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or David or somebody else? Well, there's several reasons and really too many to mention in one sermon. Anybody who is a history buff or an Old Testament buff or somebody that just loves languages or loves history and how it all correlates together, man, this is one of those passages in the Bible that you love. You can spend weeks and weeks in, to be honest. But what you would know as an avid reader of the Old Testament, you would have spotted some incredible themes being played out here. Moses is there, and so is Elijah, and so is Jesus. Moses represents the law. Moses was the one who went and received the law from God, the Ten Commandments. Elijah represents the prophets. Elijah would have been known as the prophet, the one that restores worship to Israel. Jesus is there with the one who represents the law and the one who represents the prophets. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but I came to fulfill them. In this moment, we have Jesus with the law and the prophets and him being the one that is left standing. Moses, let's talk about him for a minute. Moses encountered God's very presence on a high mountain, Exodus 24. He had three companions and he went up after waiting for six days. Jesus on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, three companions after six days. Moses is addressed by God himself out of a cloud. And when he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing white from being in God's presence. But in this story, Jesus is seen not in the presence of God, but as the presence of God himself. And his face is shining, not from reflected glory, but from his own glory emanating out of within himself. Moses rejected the luxuries of Egypt, the royal palace, and was sent by God himself to deliver his people from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. But Jesus rejected the luxuries of heaven and was sent by the Father to deliver his people from their slavery and bondage to Satan, sin, and death. Moses delivered the law to the people of God to help shape and form their unique identity in the world. But Jesus didn't just come down from the mountain with the law. He came and fulfilled the law. He himself is the fulfillment of all the law in grace and truth. And Moses ends his earthly ministry with these words. In Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, 
It is to him you shall listen. The father comes and says on this mountain, this is the one. This is my son. Listen to him. There's also Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who also encountered God's presence on a mountain in 1 Kings 19. He was used by God to restore order and worship in Israel, and he exposed false teachers and idolatry. He came preaching a message of repentance. At great cost to himself, he preached it. But in this story, Jesus has arrived on the scene as the ultimate prophet, preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Elijah preached that it will come. Jesus preaches, I am the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, meaning it's at hand, it's happening now. Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. All of scripture, listen to me, every ounce of this book was written by God about Jesus, all of it. He fulfills all the law and prophets. Notice the significance of what Mark says in verse eight. This is really important. You are there on the mountain. You've got Moses and Elijah and the man who you've seen do crazy things that you have laid on the ground with, you've tried to find food with, you've seen walk on water, your other brothers around you, you've got all of them there, you're freaking out because Jesus is familiar to you, but now he's the glory of God, this is weird, and, but Moses and Elijah are here, imagine where you would be fixed, you're used to Jesus, but now Moses and Elijah just show up, you look up, God says out of a cloud, this is my son, listen to him. And while you've been fixed on Moses and Elijah, you're now fixed on Father God, which all of it makes sense because you would have grown up going, Moses is the hero, Elijah is the hero, the father is the hero, Jesus is so familiar. He, he's, he, he's claiming to be God, but he requires food and sleep and He's too familiar. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. It's the incarnation of God himself in the flesh. Like, it just feels too familiar. I mean, all of these figures who you would have thought about and known about were figures. They, you know what I'm saying? They're legends. And now here comes this guy who's like, was born of a woman. Claiming to be God? It doesn't make sense. So now you're with Moses, and you see them. I, that is Moses. And you see Elijah. That is for sure Elijah. These are the people that are so mysterious, heroes to us, and God the Father himself out of a cloud, just like he had done, just like the stories we had read. And he says, this is my son. Listen to him. And then you look down, and there it is again. The same Jesus that just climbed up the mountain with you, probably lost his footing a time or two. There's no Moses, there's no Elijah, there's only God in the flesh. 
Elijah, Moses, and all the other prophets have come and gone. But the one left standing to fulfill their work, to fulfill their words, and to fulfill their shortcomings is Jesus. He's more than just a teacher. He's more than just your friend. He's more than just a historical figure. He's more than just the guy that they ran around with. He is God Almighty, Yahweh, incarnate. Hebrews says it best. It says it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the whole world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Father today is confessing his son to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't turn a deaf ear. Listen to him. It is real. He is God. He is the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory himself, Jesus. The Father confesses him. He also calls us to him. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. One command. Again, listen. All the other voices that you have in your world, in your life, in this whole culture surrounding us, your flesh, the devil, the world, sin, sex, wealth, independence, etc. Jesus comes in with a different voice. The voice that you hear constantly, the voice that we hear from the whole world is this. What, do whatever you have to do to actualize who you want to be. Just decide who do you want to be, what do you want to become, and do whatever you have to do to become that. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And depends on the year or season of life, you might change who you are. You might change what you believe. You might change what you're committed to. And that's okay. As long as you do whatever you have to do to fulfill your feelings and emotions about who you should be in that moment or what the world should be or how they should treat you, go for it, man. Run hard after it. That's self-actualization. That's don't let anybody tell you no ever. And if they do tell you no, they're the problem, not you. That's the voice of the whole world right now. The Father says, listen to him. Notice what God didn't say. God didn't say, listen to Moses. God didn't say, listen to Elijah. And God especially didn't say, listen to your inner self. He says, listen to my son. Well, let's think about it then. If God says, listen to my son, what does the son say? Here's what he says in chapter eight. If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? In order to gain life, he must lose it. You must die to live. It is the good news but it's bad news first. 
the bad news is this. You're dead anyway. Your sin that you were born into causes death. It is death. There's only one way to have life. That is through Jesus. The way up is the way down. In order to gain life, you must first lose it. Jesus offers us a different thing. Listen to him. Listen to him. You can't make your own way. You can't make your own life. You can't self-actualize to eternal life. You need to die first to yourself. Say yes to Jesus. So the father confesses Jesus as his son. And then the father calls us to his son, says listen to him. And now this, this is the gospel. Because of the son, because of Jesus, then father can call us his sons, us his daughters. This is a sweet scene. They're coming down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, but then they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They had no idea. Why would Jesus tell them, don't tell anybody about this? Here's why. Because if word gets out that Moses and Elijah met with Jesus on a mountain and that Jesus' clothes shine brighter than the sun and that his face shine brighter than the sun, then everyone will start to talk about what was inevitably true, which is that Jesus might actually be the one coming to restore military power. But Jesus knows what his mission is in life. If people start to catch wind about him shining brighter than the sun, then guess what? They, would, they sure wouldn't put him to shame. They sure wouldn't embarrass him, and they for sure would not murder him. And Jesus had his face set like flint towards the cross because his mission, he knew it from start to finish. His whole point in life was he had to be, he had to be put to shame. He had to be embarrassed. He had to become what you and I deserve. He had to be killed on a Roman torture device. He had to. Don't tell anyone about what you just saw. You've never met anybody like Jesus. You have never in your life met anybody like him. He is other. He has more virtue. He is more committed to you than you will ever be to him. He is unbelievable. All of Mark has built to this moment, the mountain, the father, the prophets, the disciples, the glory of Jesus, the whole story has turned dramatically and directly now towards the mission of the king. The mission is the cross. The mission is open shame. The mission is humiliation so that you won't have to be. The disciples expected a military leader, a power, someone to agree with their ideals. What they got was a leader who lays down his life for his enemies. Now down the mountain they go. The next mountain that Jesus will head towards is the mountain of the crucifixion. On the mountain of transfiguration, 
Jesus is revealed in his glory on the mountain of crucifixion. Jesus is revealed in shame. On the mountain of transfiguration, he has white clothes burning brighter than the sun. On the cross, he is stripped naked. No clothes. Ask any psychologist, and they'll tell you that that is sexual abuse. In front of a crowd of people. He can identify with everything. Everything. Everything that you've been through, he's a sufficient high priest. He identifies with it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by Moses and Elijah. On the Mount of Crucifixion, he's also surrounded by two men, but it's two criminals. Transfiguration, he's covered in a bright cloud. The Mount of Crucifixion, he's covered in darkness. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, his close disciple, his brother and friend, says, it's good to be here. But when Jesus goes to the other mountain, Peter says, I don't know the man. He denies him three times. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus gets the, father, the Father's loud and loving affirmation. And on crucifixion, the Father is silent. Jesus goes up to this mountain and is seen in all of his glory, but then he descends down the mountain, down deep, even deeper, down to death itself, to Sheol, to that dark place, in order to raise the whole creation, in order to raise you and I in resurrection life. I'm telling you, you just have never, you have never ever met anyone like Jesus. Everything I'm saying about him is totally true. He could have at any moment ended the crucifixion, any moment, and would have been so justified. He didn't deserve it. It wasn't owed to him, it was owed to us. Because of his love for us, he gave himself up, was humiliated, put to open shame, was brutally beaten. He was so brutally beaten before he ever went to the cross. Could barely carry the cross was shamed by all the people. Remember the crowds earlier in Mark, how they would swarm around him and he would actually fear for his life because they all wanted to see him and be healed by him and, and make him a spectacle. Fans, now he's carrying his cross after being whipped in a crown of thorns and blood. Here's the same man surrounded by crowds. Not that long after crowds were his fans. You've never met anybody like him. Put to open shame so that he could put our enemies to open shame. Satan, sin, and death. So, I'm just telling you today what the Father tells us. Listen to him. Listen to him. You can trust Jesus. You can put your whole faith imperfectly in him. And then you imperfectly trust him the rest of your life. And you come back to the moments like you're in today, right now, where you say, I forgot what Jesus was like, and I remember now what he's like, and yes, I'm following him now. That's my kind of God. I've been to Thailand, other 
pagan places I've seen the chasm between the people and their God. I've been to Thailand, man. I've been to that place where it's just impoverished and broken and nasty and people are struggling. And then you see a statue of Buddha who is smiling and happy and totally different than everybody else that's worshiping him. Totally distant. Other religions where it seems like their God hates their guts. Probably he does if he were real. Seems like you've got to work so hard and he's always mad and he hates us. And, and then you come to Christianity and you see God himself in the flesh having gone through every type of suffering, every type, outstretched God in the flesh on a cross, beaten and bruised. And I think to myself, like, that looks real to me because that's life. That looks like a God who can identify with me. I, yes, please, I will worship him. That's the one I want. Anybody else, don't raise your hand. Anybody else just feel just beaten up, bruised? Like the whole earth is crazy? Like you're crazy at the stuff that's happened to you, the stuff that you've done to people? You can't catch your breath or catch a break? Jesus can identify with you. He does. He's really good. He's really good. Right now, you feel it, I feel it. We're about to close this service. What you should be thinking about right now is do you actually know Jesus? Maybe you've been to church a thousand times, a hundred times, ten times. Maybe this is your first time. And you've heard the story of Jesus, and you talk about putting your trust in him and knowing him in a cultural way, but you feel like today is the first time that you've actually really seen him in this life. Don't delay. Trust him fully today. Give your life over to him. And guess what? You're going to do that imperfectly now and then imperfectly the rest of your life. But he's worth it. He's worth your life. Give your life to him today. Let's stand up together.